0: The influence of Shakespeare is oft remarked upon. Look no further than Shakespeare's dearth day, April 23rd, when people all over the world remind other people all over the world about all the things we owe to Shakespeare. His works helped standardize the English language, which had undergone tremendous change in recent years thanks to the great vowel shift. Or it is thought that many of the plays he wrote came from sources that would not have otherwise been popularized or possibly even known at all if it hadn't been for him. I mean, even here, this podcast in its current form would not exist but for Billy S. Lists of words he invented are my favorite, and no matter how many times I come across one, I'm always surprised by at least one word that I didn't know sprang from his pen. In researching this, I discovered that obscene, one of my all-time desert island favorite words, was first used by Shakespeare in Love's Labor's Lost. Who knew? Who knew? So it goes without saying that William Shakespeare, that sweet swan of Avon, that upstart crow who turned the English language upside down, was an influential dude. But what many people gloss over in their bardolatrous zeal is the central question of our show today who influenced Shakespeare? Now, I know there are scholars out there who made it their life's mission to study the people Shakespeare studied, whether to fill in the scant body of knowledge around his life, or in an attempt to suss out the man himself, or just out of curiosity. But for the average person, the works of Shakespeare often seem sacrosanct. Perhaps it's fitting that passages from Shakespeare are as easily quoted and memorized as passages from the Bible. Both sources, it would seem, if popular imagination would have it, arrived fully formed, were divinely inspired. But Shakespeare's works were not created in a vacuum. A living, breathing human being wrote those words, and we know that, however fanciful the invention, the words he wrote were in the vast majority of cases inspired by previous works of literature, philosophy, and myth. Now, we are not Shakespearean scholars of any great pedigree. We took this question out of pure intellectual curiosity. We didn't know the answers, so we wanted to find out. And some of the answers were familiar. From Ovid's Metamorphoses to Hollinghead's Chronicles to Marlowe's The Jew of Malta, these were works with which we felt somewhat acquainted, having encountered them once or twice before. But in a few cases, there were some interesting surprises. Shakespeare's foray into foreign language works that had yet to see widespread publication in England, for instance. Or just how many of Shakespeare's plays were based on historical sources from antiquity. What I'm trying to say is this, what we're doing here, as much as anything you've listened to before on this podcast, is embarking on a journey. We don't have all the answers, but we invite you to come with us as we explore what we've learned and share what you've learned and do this thing, trade ideas and grapple with them in a setting that I think Shakespeare would have very much enjoyed. Now imagine that, Shakespeare with a podcast.
1: Since brevity is the soul of wit.
0: More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo? Wherefore art thou Romeo?
1: To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward, an infinite and endless liar, an hourly promise breaker, the owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertainment. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth. Test too much, me The course of true love never did run smooth. I'm Aiden. I'm Lindsay. And this is the Pod,
0: And we are here as I maybe eloquently put, I don't know, usually you're the one who introduces when I do the thing. Now I have to like puff up (laughs) my Yeah, yeah.
1: Continue. (laughs) Continue puffing away, Lindsay.
0: (laughs) When I I, uh, explained in my intro, we're looking at the influences that influenced shakespeare
1: mm-hmm. the and, source materials yeah. the, the inspiration the uh previous works that uh became shakespearean yeah uh through the various works of the bard himself
0: yeah and um and as i said also this is not something that we were particularly well versed in before not that we're well versed in anything we're talking about nope. we pass it off as like we're we know what we're talking about well most we try of the time, to yeah most uh, yeah, of the time an attempt is, is made Yes, it's, it's, uh, we could do better. Let's just say that. But these are, these are unprecedented (laughs) times, Aiden.
1: (laughs) Wow. Way to lean on that crux there, Lindsay. You know how it is. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, we're not the experts. Um, and we really didn't even consult with many of the experts in this case. We, we, we kind of did a smattering of approaches in terms of how we wanted to, to talk about this. Well,
0: and I think it's because this podcast, we hope you're listening to it, you know. Before the lockdowns, you were listening to it on your commute to work or on your lunch break. Um, Maybe you're listening to it while you're doing the dishes. This isn't meant to be scholarly research. We don't want to bore people to death with a list of sources, you know, listed in MLA format, you know, that people are going to go and, and write their doctoral theses on. God, I hope you're not using our podcast for your doctoral thesis.
1: Yeah, you will have but, <laughs> problems when you are defending that thing.
0: But so, so we wanted to keep it entertaining and we wanted to keep it in a format that would allow people, casual listeners like yourselves, to uh, listen at leisure and not have to deep dive as much into the nitty gritty dates and page numbers and obscure uh medieval references or earlier as well as
1: the the academic guesswork that really goes into a lot of this which we've kind of found as we were exploring uh the the sources of shakespeare's plays especially
0: we know that there's not a lot of information about shakespeare himself so we are leaning on a lot of um presumptions i guess about Mm -hmm. what shakespeare's upbringing was like and what his early schooling are like or was like um
1: well really the whole thing like, yeah. like like it is one thing to say uh as we will many times throughout this <laughs> this episode is that uh there was this work that existed yes and there's too. proof that england had a copy of it therefore shakespeare used it in yeah. some way yeah there's a lot of presumptive things about yeah. that whereas there there no one knows no one knows exactly where uh Shakespeare got his ideas there's obviously a lot of evidence to support Mm -hmm. certain uh sources Mm -hmm. uh but there's also other things that you think oh well this scene is just like this other scene in this Italian play from 50 years earlier Mm -hmm. therefore Shakespeare must have traveled to Italy and seen it in the original setting in Verona and And then taught
0: himself Italian in order to read the original text yes like there there are people who go that route and that's not the route that we're taking although well. Some of the information that we are going to present to you is sourced from people who have gone that route. So, yeah. but we we wanted to keep it simple, I think. And so, in order to do that, we kind of broke down Shakespeare's life in a or his career, I guess, mm-hmm. um, chronologically. So, our first place where we want to jump in is, you know, as Maria von Trapp said, the very beginning <laughs> in the sound of music.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, I got the reference. You got the
0: reference. Okay, good.
1: Just we're not talking about his. Childhood, it's Well, like, we're
0: kind of talking about his youth and his education, yeah, okay. right? So what would he have learned if he was a young boy, a West Country lad, you know, Warwickshire youth yes, going I mean, to a grammar school in the Tudor era, 1560s, 1570s? What would he have learned sitting down in one of those desks? Uh, the Bible. The Bible would have been absolutely one of the first things they would learn. <laughs> this one thing, it's not in my notes and it should have been absolutely. Oh, no, no, it, it is. In my notes. It was it's your right first there. thing in the notes. It's no- the first thing in the notes. <laughs> I can't read.
1: You're very smart there. Like...
0: Never underestimate the power of the church. <laughs> That's also in my well, notes. <laughs> it, it,
1: exactly. And it is true. I mean, if you think about it, uh, this especially uh, this is the early, earlier years of the Anglican church um, being in power and distributing Bibles in the vernacular, uh, it is the you know it wasn't yet the king james bible yep. that it had become widespread but uh there were i think two or three different translations that had been done and were popular yeah. in elizabeth's time and and uh, henry the eighth as well uh so you know there that that alone the fact that there were english uh versions of the bible he probably also would have studied a lot of the latin yes uh version of the bible as well in in school because uh you know you would have memorized your your latin from probably the most commonly used source which was the yeah. bible yeah. um but yeah, the fact that there was this, this massively culturally important book in English for the first time.
0: Finally available. Yeah, yeah
1: finally available time. for the for widespread use, yeah, I think is quite important.
0: Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, obviously they would have been reading and he would have been familiar with the stories of the Old and New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you mentioned Latin, reading the Latin text. I think uh, Latin and Greek were also being taught to some degree. Yeah. Um, they would have had... I mean, Latin is not commonly studied in Canada. I think in some United States. It's Some still schools studied, in the United States, yeah. it's still mm-hmm. studied. Um, Greek, I, I don't think Greek, ancient Greek is taught, unless you're, you know, taking a classics degree or something. Yeah,
1: it's, it's more of a post-secondary thing at this So thing, this
0: yeah. is some, like, honestly, yeah, post-secondary, you know, this is something that um, people in, like, young adults and, and adults are learning these languages that would have been taught um, at that same kind of level to yeah. grade schoolers yeah. what we would call grade schoolers yeah. so shakespeare would have gotten um quite a good education at the the uh king edward school king edward school I, I think it was, was. the king yeah. edward yeah. school um in latin and greek and, and in the classic works of literature from yeah. ancient rome and greece so ovid virgil Uh, Plutarch Plutarch, yeah Yeah. so a lot of these really great poets and playwrights and uh, philosophers that come out of that the ancient classical world Mm -hmm. would have been taught to Shakespeare as soon as he was old enough to read
1: yep so the, those include books like Metamorphosis, which is one of the most commonly cited sources for a lot of Shakespeare. The Aeneid. Um, the Aeneid, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And even at this point, uh, there were some things of the translations of the Iliad coming over yeah. from uh, the Arab world, uh, and they started been pop- being popularized into English as well. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just Greek and, uh, and Latin as well, but there were some of the classics were being translated into English quite frequently as well.
0: I have to wonder also, and I don't have the information right in front of me, but would French have been considered something that people would have learned coming out of the Middle Ages? Yeah, French being where everybody
1: spoke French, yeah, and, and stuff? I
0: mean, I I don't think it would have been as important as Latin, Greek, and and the
1: yeah English Bible, but. yeah, exactly. I think I don't think, especially for uh, the written word, I think it would have yeah. been very secondary, or well tertiary even quaternary yes can't make up words like that uh but yeah it perhaps someone likely some people would have spoken it yeah uh because there were still a lot of commercial ties mm-hmm. between uh the former english holdings in yes in france and there was traders and especially again once he's in london you yeah know, he'd be exposed to italian and french and all these other things but that's that's further down the ride Yeah, as a child, probably not, but yes, definitely the the Latin Greek.
0: But because the only reason I I wondered that is because there's a rich French literary tradition around, Mm -hmm. you know, the chivalry, the poems and stuff like that that came out of the Middle Ages. But you don't even really need to go that far afield to get some of those great um, poetic works because you have this burgeoning literary scene, if you want to call it that, in England, Mm -hmm. starting with Chaucer. So Shakespeare would have probably encountered Chaucer at some point. Yep. Um, and Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, his poems, Parliament of Fowls, um, we, know that, we know yeah, that, yeah, sure. Troilus and Cressida became Troilus and Cressida, <laughs> yeah. um, the play that Shakespeare wrote. Yeah. Um, so that and then Edmund Spencer, the fairy queen, um, he obviously would have encountered Petrarch, maybe not as a young student, yeah. but in his youth, right, yeah. he would have encountered, you know, in his early days, maybe in London, he would have encountered uh uh, Petrarch mm-hmm. did i say Plutarch before
1: no uh, we, said Plutarch we said Plutarch earlier. Plutarch is, yes Petrarch please. the yes.
0: italian poet yeah. yes yeah. the sonneteer the one who who made the, the uh, petrarchan, sonnets. The petrarchan yeah, sonnet yeah, exactly um so yes, the, these are these are really influential English texts, and you can imagine, I mean, it's nice to imagine, and here we are going into our speculation, but it's nice to imagine Shakespeare as a young man reading The Fairy Queen mm-hmm. and thinking, man, the English language could, this, is, this rocks, this, this is, is awesome, yeah,
1: exactly. right? Yeah. Or,
0: or reading The Canterbury Tales and seeing how you can weave humor and pathos and a bit of ethos and all of this mm-hmm. into one meandering text that has a central focus, and yeah. there's lots of really interesting characters that all hold their own in the canterbury tales that's something really phenomenal and and as a anybody who's read any of that especially imagine you know at a time when english is coming into its own as a language and seeing what it could do that would just spark so much imagination right you can you have to imagine that it must have yeah Um, The last thing that I think would have influenced him the most is just where he grew up. And we have evidence of that in in a lot of the plays. The Forest Mm -hmm. of Arden features very prominently in As You Like It. Um, There are references to regions and regionalisms and pronunciations throughout his plays, especially when you get country folk who come in. Yes, especially Um, in the
1: histories and so forth. Yeah,
0: and and some of the comedies, I I think it's... uh, there was a there's a, a count or something or or somebody who's like a wealthy landowner yeah. and it seems he comes from a town near Stratford upon Avon who okay. uses words or words are used yeah. in reference to him. Yeah. That, that um, are very
1: regionalized. Yeah, yeah.
0: and they're even yeah. written in a way like the town he's from is written in the way that a person from the West Country would say that. Yeah. Like someone from Warwickshire would say it that way. Yeah. Which is really cool. Like that's not something that someone who was born and bred in London or in the upper echelons of society would necessarily ape the language of yeah when, uh, the well, yeah would classes. they even
1: yeah exactly would they even know how and would they yeah. be able to do it authentically but you get the sense that Shakespeare probably would have he would have done a decent job of, of capturing that and expressing it on yeah the page. and
0: yeah. I mean we all know anybody who studied a second language it takes a long time to be able to incorporate colloquialisms into your 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 speech as a second or third language user so mm-hmm. um, to be able to pepper them in so effortlessly uh really does this gets into the authorship question which we aren't going to deal with yet but um the, all those people who say that shakespeare is and who we think shakespeare is i i have to wonder when i look at this and i see you know words that are very common in a, in a town like stratford upon avon you know someone like you know the earls and the counts and queen elizabeth they aren't using words like that they yeah. wouldn't know what those words are yeah they right? would just never
1: have been exposed to them yeah. so
0: why then the world's mine oyster, which I with sword will open. So those are his early influences, the things that he would have been brought up with. Moving into that second region, Aiden, maybe you want to take the lead on that one.
1: Yeah, so this is kind of Shakespeare's uh, experience possibly in the earlier part of either his career as an actor or whatever he was doing in London prior to uh, and during his early years as as a playwright. Keeping in
0: mind that we have no idea what he was doing, where he was. Yeah,
1: yeah. this is is kind of all based (laughs) on assumptions that he at some point entered the literary society. Um, We don't know exactly where Shakespeare was in this time period or what he was doing, but we do know he was an actor. Uh, we do know there is evidence that he was perhaps a part of the, the Queen's men at some point mm-hmm. in the 1580s, 90s, around there, perhaps. Um, so
0: The Queen's men? Is that, or the Lord Chamberlain's The Lord Chamberlain's men. Yeah. Men, yeah, yeah. Sorry.
1: Yeah. Um, and... Uh, so we're assuming that at some point he entered this kind of world of, of fellow writers. Yes. Uh, so this is entering the what they're called the University Wits.
0: Yes, I have a list.
1: Yes, please. Lindsay. So
0: Christopher Marlowe, obviously, is leader of the University Wits um, It included Thomas Nash, Thomas Lodge, Thomas Kidd, Robert Greene, who famously um, called Shakespeare a um groat's worth of wit was his the yeah. phrase that he used to describe shakespeare's intellect mm-hmm. um john Lily, L- Lily, i don't know Lili? and george peele um these were a group of poets and university lads who were very active in the london theater scene and would have been hugely influential i mean christopher marlowe was basically one of the top playwrights of yeah, maybe the, ta- the, of, the day. of the
1: time, yeah. Yeah,
0: and and you have a lot of other people like Nash and Kid who later we know from evidence of the texts we know that they contributed in some way to the works that Shakespeare um, wrote later on. So clearly, he's involved with these guys from an early age. It it seems natural that as a young man, same age, I think he was born a month before or a month after Christopher Marlowe. Like they were yeah, born they were in the same close year, time. Very um, maybe similar, not a month, but yeah.
1: And they also had similar backgrounds Absolutely. and everything. Yeah. yeah,
0: so so hugely hugely influential. This group of of uh, men and and their impact on Shakespeare can't be um, discounted. Yeah, or I think. Under,
1: yeah, yeah, under underrepresented really because yeah. it's it it is inherently a. Uh, a small community, but also a very competitive one. They were writing plays against one another uh, to show at the different playhouses, and they would try and draw each other's crowds. So it's it's very similar to a modern-day kind of... you know, studio environments, perhaps, well, or something and, and like
0: that. the other comparison that can be made is that there were lots of people working together on place too, mm-hmm. which yes. is also very similar to a modern-day yeah. TV studio setting yeah. where you have, you know, you look on any episode of any TV show, there's, like, 16 writers, right? So that's kind of what it was like, and, and I read a, an account, and I wish I would have saved it somewhere, so I'm going to paraphrase it badly, but... Um, the top writer would take the first scene or the first act and the lesser writers would take later acts. So that's how they would tend to write. Like you would get the... the. the the opening scenes, the opening prologues, whatever, would go to the top writer at the time. So someone like Marlowe or Nash would take the forefront, Mm -hmm. and someone like Shakespeare coming into that scene as an early writer would probably be relegated to maybe, you know, uh, fixing up a few lines here or there, writing a little comic scene, maybe be given a character that he would Mm -hmm. write or something. Um, So that was really all... That was something that was going on at this time. It's it's kind of bleeds into my third point about um, the writing process for Shakespeare, but it definitely plays into his early experience and the influence that these writers would have had on one another, whether they were competing for stage time or collaborating on a, a, a bigger project. Mm-hmm. That influence would have been
1: just inherent, yeah. yeah, just part of the process there. So it is it is really it's again this is pure conjecture on our part. There's there's mm-hmm. really. No way we can know to what extent uh, Shakespeare was influenced by these other writers. But it is evident in a lot of uh, the plays that he does write mm-hmm. later on. We know there are uh, precedents in uh, Marlowe, for instance. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Jew of Malta to Merchant of Venice is obviously the, the biggest connection. Right. But, yeah. you know, his history plays as well. Uh, Edward II kind of bleeds in very naturally to um, the Henry plays. Um, and you've got to note here that it's actually kind of like Henry the VI uh is uh played on by marlowe in uh his edward the second and then shakespeare in turn kind of calls back to uh edward the second richard the second which came a bit later
0: sure yeah that was from a, a bbc radio 4 podcast that i listened to so i'll mm-hmm. link that in our in our description yeah. that was a really really fun one just about christopher marlowe and his life and time yeah so, okay uh, yeah it's it's really fascinating the way that, that that happened it's something i really didn't know until i kind of researched it a bit mm-hmm. so it's like his early writing process but as he gets into more of the you know the the established shakespeare that we think and
1: and um, yeah the, the plays that we're getting to now yeah, in, our, in our chronology this is, yeah. this
0: is shakespeare the dramatist or shakespeare the poet who has established himself in mm-hmm. the london scene and and the things that he's drawing on there tend to be a lot more lofty it's not just um necessarily happenstance things that he remembers from his childhood although that still plays a role and it's not just stories he read as a schoolboy, and it's not just oh i need to beat marlo because of course we know marlo died fairly young mm-hmm. so um it's, it's not just that. We start looking at outside sources and looking at adaptations, I guess you could call them, more in a modern fandom kind of way, like fan fiction. Yeah. You know, you take an original source and you tweak it and you add your own characters and your own spin on things and then you present it as your own. Mm-hmm. And that's something that Shakespeare did very well. Um, I think what we wanted to do here is to kind of dive into a few of the plays that we thought really captured that spirit of uh, adaptation. Yeah. And what did Shakespeare use to pull his information from? Methinks thou art a general offense, and every man should beat thee. I think thou was
1: created for men to breathe themselves upon thee. Um,
0: so the first play on our list is The Comedy of Errors.
1: Yes, because it is one of the earliest plays, uh, and it is an outright adaptation. There's, there's very little that Shakespeare added to it. It is uh, a Plautus play, so uh, traditional Latin uh, author again this is probably one he would have studied as a child in school so he mm. would have been aware of it they might have even put on the play at school uh yeah, potentially maybe. um and it was also available in english so it's quite easy to translate and so forth mm. um but shakespeare copied it almost verbatim there's uh if you remember from our previous uh, episode on it uh there is a wife who's angry at the husband who's one of the twins uh who then goes to see a prostitute and then the wife is angry at the prostitute and the husband and then the prostitute gets angry at the husband because the other twin shows up and confuses things. It is beat by beat. It is almost the exact same play. Um, But there were a few uh, important kind of tweaks to it. So uh, first of all, and I think we mentioned this in, in the episode as well, but uh, the fact that he doubled up the twins so that the, the slaves were also twins uh, so that they could also have this comic uh, misjudgment going on. Is really interesting. It's it's like he's like okay, well, this is a classic play. What can I do to uh, amp it up even Let's further? Just add another set of another twins. Another set of twins, <laughs> twice the fun, everybody. Uh, and it and it kind of works that way. Uh, yeah. It still it still follows the same structure, but it also adds. Um, just just an extra an extra level of possibility for for hijinks, uh, which is really all the plays about. Um, but it's I thought the other change that Shakespeare made was also mm. worth noting, which is that he added the the parents back into uh, the mix when he added the father who also came to the town in Greece, Epidamnus, I think, or I don't remember where it was now. Yeah. Um, but the the father also shows up at the end and meets up with the mother who's also in the town. It's it's this extra uh, very Elizabethan kind of like mm. family reunion elements to it so he's 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 very much taking the traditional play um he doesn't even change some things that aren't very elizabethan like slavery and a lot of beatings that you know probably wouldn't fly quite as much in yeah in london uh but he he knows that those ones will bring the laughs and then he adds these these modern contemporary Influences and thoughts and ideas, um, and this is also one of the plays that was very focused on commercialism and the exchanging of things. So he's he's added these extra dynamic themes to a very very traditional play otherwise. Um, and I thought I think that's kind of a in my mind, Lindsay. I know you and I are going to just on this a little bit. I think uh, it's
0: going to be our ancient bickering. I, I, I think, think so, <laughs> but
1: uh, I think you know I think that's one of the defining ways that Shakespeare operated was that he didn't reinvent any wheels, he added an extra, you know, screw to the hubcap kind of thing. But those they are very glittery screws that he's <laughs> he's added and they they improve the stability of the wheel as a whole uh very very well. It's I'm sorry for this metaphor. It is terrible it's, but it's
0: stuck on the chassis. <laughs> Everything is yeah, really everything's
1: solid on this thing now. <laughs> uh and I, I, I think that's that's okay. the Comedy Bears is kind of a good example of that.
0: Okay. Uh, the next play that I wanted to talk about is the Midsummer Night's Dream, which we referenced in our episode a couple weeks, from, well, it's been about a couple of months yeah. since the time we were releasing this one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of his original plays. We might've said it was his only original play, but that's not entirely true. Yeah. There are, there and are even PRS. in this case, it's not really entirely true because he did borrow this, like you should see my notes, like the <laughs> list of places that he took inspiration from yeah, and pieces. Yeah, and, and it's really cool. It's almost like he went to a literary junk sale and he was just like, yes, I'm going to take that piece there and I'm going to put this piece on top of that piece and yeah. I'm going to screw this onto the bottom and I'm going to have a really cool play. And and when you look at all these pieces, it really does seem like it's, it's not random necessarily because they all kind of come from uh, classical texts uh, or, um, uh, you know, sources that are very... Uh, I don't want to say they're from antiquity because they're not necessarily all that, yeah, but, but they're they focused have, on
1: that kind of yeah. way distant past, kind of yeah. like where magical things or can like, happen. Or like they're and, mythological yeah. in a yes. sense or something. Yeah. So yeah. so
0: he's drawing on, on a deep wellspring of of knowledge that comes from a variety of sources. So for example, he's got um, Theseus and Hippolyta come from a translation of Plutarch's mm-hmm. uh, or a translation of Plutarch. Theseus and Apollota also feature in Chaucer, so it's possible that Chaucer was also using original sources from Plutarch, mm-hmm. which is the nature of the writing game. People yep. all draw on the same sources sometimes. Uh, Pyramus and Thisbe obviously comes from Ovid's Metamorphosis. Um, Shakespeare's Oberon was influenced by uh, the book of Duke Huron of Burdu. Mm-hmm. I'm probably pronouncing that very incorrectly. I'm sure it's
1: Bordeaux now, but yes. <laughs> um,
0: the uh, The transformation of Bottom into a uh, donkey donkey, yeah. donkey. Uh, and and some other aspects of of bottom's transportation come from the discovery of witchcraft and uh the books of the golden ass by apuleius again i'm probably pronouncing that wrong as well uh you've got edmund spencer as well showing up with um depiction of friendly fairies as opposed to evil fairies which is how they used to be kind of categorized yeah, as a little
1: more malevolent yeah yeah, yeah.
0: and then um, Seneca, his, Seneca's 10 tragedies are where Medea and Hippolyta or Hippolytus in that play are, um, are used as source inspiration for Helena and Demetrius's love plot. So there's a lot of, um, picking and choosing like various elements of, of different, different places, putting them together, kind of blending them together and making this new thing out of the. Out of the pieces of that, yeah, which is really cool. It's not something that's. It's not like that's never been done before, but it does seem kind of the way that he did it. Mm-hmm. We we remarked on it when we did our episode on that. The Midsummer Night's Dream just feels like a different kind of play. It's so memorable. It's um, the whole is definitely greater than the sum yeah. of its parts. If well, you want to, it, it also has way. a
1: few other interesting things, which is like a. It's the metatextual stuff. So I mean, the whole Pyramus and Thisbe. Uh, reference is so not just strong but it's it's such a crux of the entire plot of bottom and all the the uh what are they called again the The rude rude mechanicals mechanicals, thank you um so like their whole existence is um predicated on this on everybody kind of understanding pyramus and Thisbe this this story from antiquity uh all of shakespeare's audience probably would have known it well enough i mean they they do a bit of hand-holding but um it's not like it would have been totally off to left field and yeah. the fact that this is very close to Romeo and Juliet uh, yes. is also very interesting but also I think uh the one thing that shows up in Midsummer uh, that we vaguely touched on was uh it feels like English woods it, it's 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 yeah. English spirits in a in a very well, particular especially way that, because, even though they're Greek you know
0: yeah especially with the inclusion of Robin Goodfellow yes um or Puck who is associated with these Greek uh, mythological figures, but is very much a product of the English yes. legendary mythological landscape.
1: Goodfellow is not a Greek name, no. as far as I can tell.
0: No, and Robin even isn't. Yeah. Like that's not yeah. something that you you encounter in yeah. <laughs> in Latin. Yeah. Um. Maybe you do. I'm speaking <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. either way, um. The point is, is that it's it's yeah, it's a nice bringing together of all of these pieces that feels in the end like an English play, mm-hmm. and it. It has all those aspects of English drama that later inform the Restoration, uh, like comedies of error mm-hmm. and uh, comedies of manner, and that kind of thing that come out of the the Restoration period in the 17th century. Um, but it's done in the 1590s, yeah. And and I think that's really cool. And and also just to piggyback on your notion of, of the audience being familiar with Pyramus and Thisbe. They also probably would have been somewhat passingly familiar with characters like Theseus and Apollida mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So Robin Goodfellow as well. So I can imagine the joy in the audience. It's I, I would liken it to, like, the Avengers Endgame. Yeah. Where you see all of the Marvel superheroes on screen. And yeah. you're like, oh my god, it's it, my favorite guy! Yeah. Or whatever, right? Yeah. And, and I kind of feel like that might have been... Maybe I'm overstating the influence. No, but influence. I, I can
1: see where you're going with it. Because it's like, oh yeah, Theseus, he's the one who slayed the guy in the maze, right? I don't yeah, know if that was whatever. actually Yeah, Oh, but Hippolyta,
0: she's the <laughs> yeah, she's she's a a queen a, of the Amazons. Yeah, and, and you know you don't she's mess with gonna, she's going to slap him down, and, and it would be hilarious. and Yeah. Like, I just... I. I have to wonder how many people in the audience would have picked up on that. Maybe Shakespeare was writing for them. It feels mm-hmm. like a very clever play in that sense because yeah. it is drawing on so many different sources. It's like a crossover episode. It's like St. Elsewhere. It's the...
1: <laughs> it's the lynchpin. The, <laughs> the Tommy coffee's. Westfall yeah. Yeah. universe sure. in
0: Shakespearean time centers on Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, if you say so. <laughs> Pyramus and Thisby is a good segue into the next play that we're going to mm-hmm. talk about, which is Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Um, So Shakespeare's primary source for Romeo and Juliet was a poem by Arthur Brooke called "The Tragical History of Romeo and Juliet," written Mm -hmm. in about 1562. I did read this one, and I got really bored about (laughs) a third of the way through it. Yeah, just because, like, the story is beautiful and and it's written very well, but it's just not. I guess. Experiencing it as a play makes it different. You want to see yes. this, you want to hear these characters speak. You don't just want lines of text thrown at you. Yeah. It may also be that I've been spending a lot of time on my computer and so my <laughs> eyes are there just kind of glazed yeah, like over. over yeah. But um but it was interesting to see to read the original and to see some of the things that Shakespeare took and what he left behind. Like conversations that are had between um Benvolio and Romeo seem to come directly from not word for word, but very similar to what was in Brooks Brooks' mm-hmm. poem. But there are other things that are left behind, like, for example, one big question that my students have always had whenever I teach Romeo and Juliet is why do the Capulets and Montagues hate each other so much? And in Brooks' play, um, it's because they don't like each other's. They're they're envious of each other's port. Mm-hmm. In Verona, which has no port, yes, unless they're talking about the wine, but I don't think that's the case. No. I think it's just a, a case of some Englishmen not understanding the well, geography of <laughs> Italy. Exactly.
1: Well, and it's it's interesting because the the that. Uh, that poem is itself based on uh the italian original source yes. material which was a kind of like a novella type yes uh, e romeo e romeo uh, a novella yeah. yeah so from 1554 so yeah. even earlier um and it's it's kind of like again these are these are things that are just getting passed from culture to culture and things are getting Miss, lost in, the lost translation. in translation and yeah. misappropriated and just just changed for uh, oh well they don't know where uh, this other town is that yeah. actually has a port so right. in Verona it goes because everyone's or, heard of Verona or or
0: it's that it was it was literally a mistranslation maybe yeah. somebody did mean something yeah. they were they were it was Venice jealous and of and they couldn't of, read the writing well no so they or they or so. were jealous of each other's forte <laughs> and they and they misread it as port sure but what fascinated me about that is that one of the again coming back to the authorship question. One of the key arguments that I've heard over and over again is that Shakespeare doesn't have the in-depth knowledge of geography and the law and all that stuff he couldn't have written all of this because he gets so much wrong and they point to verona not having ports as one of those things a man who had been to verona would have known this well if shakespeare was basing it off of brooks play or brooks poem he's just copying it from there he's not
1: gonna he's not gonna double check there's no wikipedia like
0: he's not gonna double check this look at his atlas with the god at the top and sea monsters everywhere like it's not gonna that's just not gonna happen so it really really does show how this was not just borrowing the spirit of the text it was like the letter of the text almost was being borrowed and then expanded upon in really interesting ways like making romeo and juliet's first interaction a sonnet is a stroke of genius and really does underpin their whole love story that's not in Brooks poem that's no. an invention of Shakespeare's yeah. borrowing from in that case Petrarch and Brooke yeah. to bring these lovers to life and that's the the stroke of genius that Shakespeare brings to the plays that he's adapting all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. Uh, the next play is also one that I researched, so sorry, you're going to have to hear my voice for a little while longer. Wait, quite all right. Um, <laughs> the Merchant of Venice. Mm-hmm. Uh, we already mentioned that um, there's a striking resemblance to many aspects of Marlowe's The Jew of Malta. Mm-hmm. Um, what's probably happened is that both of those. Marlowe and Shakespeare were basing their plays off of an earlier play from the 14th century by Giovanni Fiorentino um, called Il Pecorone or The Simpleton. And it was published in England in about 1565. So fairly recently, it would have been hot off the presses uh, for these young writers at the time. There was no English translation, though, that existed for Shakespeare to use. So, which is interesting, I don't know about Marlowe's history, if he spoke Italian or had somebody translate it for him, for him to get that um, information from. Um, But it's possible that Shakespeare had a copy translated for him. More likely, I think personally, is that he heard the play or heard Marlowe talking about writing the Jew of Malta and took that story and, and expanded on it or heard the original story and remembered it and expanded on it later. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because there was no English translation available for Shakespeare doesn't mean that he couldn't have used that source in some way, even if it was secondhand.
1: Yeah. and, Um, And that's an interesting thing that we didn't mention in our earlier kind of catalog of where he was getting his ideas, but there is also just the very distinct possibility that a lot of these ideas were passed on orally whether that was literally oh i i saw this play i went to italy and i saw this amazing play i'll tell you all about it over a over an ale at you know some the rose or whatever place it would be or uh it's literally uh these are just stories passed on from person to person Mm -hmm. and uh there's a lot of evidence of shakespeare using archetypes um in fact uh uh, one of the ones we're not talking about here but I did uh do a bit of research was uh taming of the shrew. Yes. Uh there is a uh there is a oral tradition archetype of uh a man having to subdue his shrewish, wa- shrewish yeah. wife.
0: We may um, have talked about it in our episode. Yeah, I think I think, I
1: think we yeah, I think we probably did actually. Um but yeah borrowing but yeah.
0: those archetypes and then expanding on them with, you know, other stories that you've heard in the pub or mm-hmm. whatever is not completely outside the realm of possibility. Like I I don't remember who this is. I mentioned it to Aiden when we were kind of planning this episode, but there's a comedian or an actor who walks around with a with a moleskin notebook in his pocket and if he hears something really interesting that you're telling him, he'll write it down and then years later people have said that their stories end up in his his acts or whatever. Or and like I don't see how that couldn't also apply to Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Like someone who sits there in the pub and and stares you down and is like, that is a fascinating story. Mm -hmm. Pardon me. I have to go to my quill. (laughs) I have to write this down before I forget. And then he races back home and he scribbles out some notes about what he remembers from that story and then crafts a, you know, why couldn't that have happened for Mm -hmm. him too? Um, We're really making the case for uh, the uh, Stratfordian argument here, aren't we?
1: Well, I mean, we're just, that's because that's what it is. I get it. <laughs> that's I reality. Guess, yeah, that's Plus, true. I mean, it it does make sense. I I think this yeah. is, uh, this exercise for me, at least, uh, really helps solidify the fact that these these were not, it was not impossible for no, William someone... Shakespeare from Stratford to write these stories because, yeah. as you say, there's just so many, there's so much precedent for these in other plays. Like the fact that the Jew of Malta was, uh, Written from likely the same kind of basic source material, yeah. Shakespeare obviously went and saw that play, uh, or yeah. you know read it from you know uh, what's his name's original manuscript, yes. right? So like, that, and then he wrote his own play. Yeah, uh, that just that just seems so obvious, and it makes so much sense in yeah. the idea of this late 16th century London that mm-hmm. has this thriving but small scene of writers and yeah. actors and, uh, you know, uh, shared prostitutes that they probably all <laughs> visited and stuff, right? <laughs> yes. Like, it's a small social circle that things Sex would have gone around. Sex workers. Yes, yes. I always, I still slip into that. I'm sorry. I'm going
0: to help Jelly beans at you or something. That's fair. You can do the same to me because I do it too. Yeah. I apologize. <laughs> Going back to the Merchant of Venice, that that Il pecorone has much of the original uh, storyline. Mm. Um, they're even down to like the wife of the the friend of the merchant standing uh. up in court and freeing oh, him. Oh, so
1: Porsche's not an original creation. Okay. Yeah,
0: um, but one thing that isn't in there is the casket storyline. Um, Hmm. The the three caskets that Portia has her suitor choose from. um, That comes from another play that was translated into English in the 1570s. There's also another source play called The Jew that is lost. So it's possible that, again, both Shakespeare and Marlowe based their plays on this missing play, which did come from someone who who knew Italian and translated O Pecorone into... Mm. But nobody knows. There are there's references to that play being... Performed and there are lines from that play that um, that were transcribed and written in people's diaries or in you know scribbled in margins of texts that we have. Um, those scribblings match up to lines and passages from uh, the Merchant of Venice. So mm-hmm. it's very likely that there was some uh, crossover there between those plays and that the Jew, this missing text, might be that missing link yeah. in the translation. Change, yeah. I guess
1: yeah. uh, next one we wanted to talk about was Julius Caesar um, and this one's kind of like it, it, when I was reading about this one I was very surprised by because uh, they have a, a side-by-side comparison it was mostly taken from Blutarch's Lives so this is okay. a book all about um, it's, there are two sets of biographies of important characters from antiquity um, and they're shown in contrast so it's like Alexander the Great and then Caesar mm. uh, and Plutarch was writing more as a moralist than anything so it's it's kind of, uh, similar to Shakespeare's treatment of history, it's it's not so much concerned with factual historical accuracy. It's very dramatic. And a lot of the drama in Julius Caesar is taken in some cases word for word from uh, the translation from by Thomas North that was very popular uh, in Shakespeare's time. So uh, there's literally like some of the the lines that they have that Shakespeare puts in characters' mouths is straight from the text uh, with just some like, grammatical variation in order to make it a dialogue as opposed to a narrative description. Um, But, you know, there's the soothsayer, there's, uh, you know, being beware in the Ides of March. Um, There's, uh, there's, yeah, there's just, there's so many similarities that it's, it's another instance of Shakespeare kind of very uh, directly taking from an official source and then putting a spin on it. Um, And most of the deviations that he kind of, does get into um they're they're there for dramatic effect like they simplify the timeline uh they have you know i think uh some of the the revolters going against uh brutus and team uh are uh they arrive in rome instead of another town nearby okay uh the the whole um Everything happens on the Ides of March, I think, as opposed to it was spread out over a couple days in in Plutarch and stuff. Um, But it's uh, it's a very very telling instance of Shakespeare again taking mostly most of the play whole and then adapting to to uh, fit the dramatic tension (laughs) that he wants and that his audience would have expected. Um, The other interesting one is uh, Et tu, Brute? Yes, uh, was not in the original at all. Uh, That one was uh, there's book by called the 12 caesars by suetonius Su- suetonius yes yeah. um which had caesar say that a similar phrase but in greek after he was stabbed really? uh yeah but nobody uh greek was less popular in england so uh people would not have understood it so whereas et tu brute is just very simple and it, it also just sounds french so it's okay. it's very easy to understand why would
0: he say it in greek
1: uh, everybody spoke both in in, oh. in ancient Rome.
0: I like to think it's kind of like Shakespeare saying, you know, rhyming couplets for the rich people and just prose for the poor people. It's like Julius, like, and you Brutus yeah. in Greek, like, to yeah. signify you bastard. Yeah, ba- Greek well, is lower. I don't know. No, I'm Greek was that Greek
1: up. was higher. Oh like, that well, was, then yeah. there you
0: go. See, it's you've kind got of like one Latin. year of classics I
1: took. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, it, it's true because, okay. uh, yeah, uh, like they just recently integrated a lot of Greece into the empire. So it was, uh, it was considered a, the a academic language. Ac- oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. All right. Since for all the, the learned philosophers and stuff like were from originally. Like when
0: the Normans invaded and French became the language of the... Yeah, okay.
1: the invading people. Right. Yeah,
0: yeah. That's cool. I did not know any of that about Julius Caesar. So yeah,
1: that's... so it supports my theory very cleanly that, uh, again, he just stole 99% and then made it his own. And I'm very happy for that. Well then. Yes, Lindsay, would you uh, be happy to tell us all about Hamlet?
0: I would love to tell you all about Hamlet. Please Hamlet do. uh based on a Norse legend. So this is another one where it's very very closely tied to the original. What what really tickled me was reading this. It was it was written in about 1200 AD or at least written down. Um probably very similar to Beowulf. This was a legend that was passed on orally. Mm-hmm. Um, it uh, tells the rise and fall of the great rulers of Denmark, this book by Saxo Grammatico. Um, great name. Yeah, it literally means <laughs> Saxo the literate. Yeah. You know, the, the one guy who could write was like, all right, fine, I'll write I'll down, write all, down, all, down of these. all the stories. Yeah. Um, so, and one of the tales that he tells is the story of Amleth, who is the son of the king who was killed by his brother mm-hmm. um, in order to, for the brother to marry the wife and the wife's name is gareth so it's very clear that hamlet and gertrude came from these names yeah um it's unlikely that shakespeare read saxo grammatico's book um but or grammaticus sorry okay. saxo grammaticus yeah it's very unlikely that he read the original text because it was written in uh norwegian i would uh, imagine yeah, yeah um so or maybe even in runes were they using
1: runes <laughs> not, in not in 1200 no no all right never
0: mind not. ignore me um <laughs> But it's uh, it's it, it's it's a story or it's a, a, a book of legends that was passed on. It was published in French in the fifteen early fifteen hundreds, and would have come to uh, England via France. So mm. um, again, it's not entirely unlikely that he uh, that he heard of that original source material. But what's more likely is that Thomas Kidd's play, which is lost again, a lost Mm -hmm. play called the Ur-Hamlet, um, is the main source for Shakespeare's, uh, Shakespeare's version of Hamlet. Um,
1: and that's, that's interesting because there was there, again, we talked about the Jew of Malta already, uh, or Hamlet. Uh, there's, uh, when we get to Lear, there's a King Lear with an eye, uh, that was either, and it's hard to tell whether it was a source material or an earlier version of a Shakespeare play. Yeah, I'm leaning more towards uh, a competing thing because it sounds like these plays were just performed all over the place and everyone uh, borrowed and used other people's ideas <laughs> and stories. You know, I wonder if there's like a Midsummer Night's Nightmare out there right. that, that that was ne- that was never published but it was put on because someone was like, "Oh, you are gonna do the opposite of Shakespeare. Yeah, everything Shakespeare
0: like, does Fuck. just just do it. the
1: exact, yeah, exactly." What so. I'm
0: what I'm imagining now is like one of those Lord Byron type contests where all these people are like all right yeah. guys we're gonna write the scariest story we can." go yeah and they all end up writing hamlet you know yeah. or whatever it's not obviously not a scary story but yeah you get what i'm getting yeah right? yeah exactly they, because I, that was that was really cool to read about this that they there was competition but also cooperation amongst yeah. these writers yeah. these people who were fostering the the burgeoning london theater scene yeah so yeah entirely possible that thomas kidd's play was being put on Contemporaneously, or at least within, you know, the very, very recent memory of people who later saw Hamlet, or after, yeah.
1: right? But I mean, the fact that I mean, it's it's kind of sad that we uh, that uh, that play doesn't exist because I think it'd be just an interesting comparison. Yeah. I, I think that's something we'll have to do, Lindsay. At one point, is is do uh a, a, a play where there are two sources and we can yeah. read both and then yeah. do a comparison of like okay this was also a very good play but it's very different how does that compare to Shakespeare's and what did he add what did he take away uh in the specifics because I mean I've out of all these things that we've talked about I've only read Troilus and Cressida from Chaucer which we're not even getting into here um but that's the only one I've read all the way through from start to finish uh and then also seen the Shakespeare so I think it'd be a worthwhile standalone episode perhaps we'll do that in the, the future part Sa- two of this episode.
0: sounds like a lot of work Amy Ugh.
1: It's like reading, reading two plays and then watching one of them because this other one will never be put on. Maybe, maybe there's well, a Well, no, this play. is,
0: this is what's interesting is that um, there is a, a play that was written based on Amleth
1: Mm. And it has
0: been put on. And in fact, it was filmed, and I want to say Helen Marin was in it, but I could be wrong on that.
1: As Gertrude. Um, As
0: Gertrude, yes. So, or it's Gareth, right? Because it uses the original. Yeah. And it's the original Norse play. But I mean, obviously, you look at that and you're like, that's Hamlet. What Shakespeare does is he takes that play, which doesn't end as badly, I think, (laughs) I think Amleth does rise to sit on the throne at the end. Yeah. Shakespeare takes it and turns it into this psychological drama that, that really does test your boundaries of, of what's acceptable and what's not. What's, you know, that the philosophical questions of life versus death, um,
1: kingship and all those things. Kingship and family
0: and, and revenge. Like this is what Hamlet is. Amleth is a myth. Hamlet is, you know, a work of literature. They're, they're two totally different, plays, but you can see where Shakespeare came from if you watch or read the original Norse myth, Mm -hmm. right? Obviously.
1: Yeah. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. So another uh, very big tragedy, Macbeth, one of the big Mm -hmm. ones uh, by all estimations, I'd say. Um, This one was uh, based mostly on Holland's Head. Uh, So this is the same source material that uh, gave us all the Henry plays, uh, and, you know, Richard II, King John, all of these uh, kind of English monarchs um, also covered Scotland as well. Right. Um, but in this case, uh, Hollinshed uh, took his from called the Scatorum Histori, okay. which I think is just Scottish history, uh, by Hector Bruce. And that actually laid out most of the tenets and the basic uh, flow and arc of the, of the story itself. So you have uh, the Weird Sisters, you have... Um, you know, Hamlet uh, or Hamlet, sorry, still on Hamlet. Yeah. Uh, you have Macbeth killing uh, Duncan uh, and then uh, Macduff coming and getting vengeance right. and all, you know, all the, the basic principles are there. Um, and it is based roughly on uh, historical uh, character that's one thing uh Macbeth is a historical king of Scotland it was around like time, the time of the Norman invasions uh I believe it was like 1040 to 1050 he reigned um and then he uh, was eventually killed um so th- there there were some important changes too though of course uh similar to with Julius Caesar where he he adapted to uh match what was necessary on the stage uh Shakespeare added a lot of the pathos and the uh the Especially the contrasting characters that Shakespeare's kind of really well known for, like Yeah and and Hamlet, uh here Lady having Macbeth. Yeah, exactly. Her
0: character showing up. Yes. Mac- Duff,
1: yes. And Banquo Mac- as Bank- well Woe. to yeah. have like uh the 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 you will have kings but not be one kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Like that whole that whole line as well, uh was all added in in mm-hmm. order to uh there's a lot in this in this one that was changed specifically to um kind of butter up King James because this was, of course, you know, yes. this was the Scottish play. You have your Scottish king for the first time. Uh, that whole thing about uh, his descendants being uh, from Banquo, which is historically they figured out is not accurate. But at the time that was the thinking was that oh, okay. they came from this. The Stuart line came from this guy. Oh, originally. I um, forgot
0: about that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah,
1: but the, but cool. not true. Yeah, so okay. it didn't matter. But at the time right. it was a big deal. Um,
0: I'm going to go back in time and tell my English well, she was Welsh, but my my Welsh English teacher <laughs> that
1: she was wrong. Well, no, because I think this is like a fairly recent story. Oh, so okay, perhaps okay. in two thousand two. So or, the
0: DNA evidence they found something like that, remains. Maybe. Yeah, okay. Cool. Just don't don't question. It okay, I'm chance. not gonna.
1: Uh, but the, another big change was the uh, the treatment of the weird sisters as evil kind of witches. This is very yeah. much in King James's wheelhouse of like, he was very concerned with witchery and the occult and all these question. Pieces. Yeah.
0: Did he write
1: a treatise? He wrote a book all about witches he and did. how to treat with them.
0: I used to think it was the Malleus Maleficarum but it's not. That, yeah, that's I remember just the, the big one and I'm like, oh, King James wrote the big one but no, that's not true. I don't King think James so. King James wrote or the Bible came out under him that he didn't want well, yeah, he, he didn't write didn't,
1: that either. But, he didn't write the Bible. But
0: no, he didn't write the Bible, out, but, uh, no. he also did not write the Malleus crime but he did write a treatise on, on witches or yeah, how witch. to identify witches or something. Yeah, It
1: was like how to identify witches, how, so, yeah, to, how to burn them, you know, all the totally important stuff. He's yeah. going
0: to love the weird sisters yeah. getting into. Well,
1: and, and like screwing up and making the bad guy kind of go. And that, that's, that's probably the biggest change actually is that, uh, Macbeth, in of course it's a history it's a history in uh mm. and and so forth uh here he becomes a character he yeah. really becomes you know you you dive into the psychological torment of this guy who's killed his king uh his wife's driving him nuts he has to kill his best friend like these are his the
0: tragic flaws. his tragic
1: flaws, ambition but not yeah. being able to follow it through so yeah. it, it really adds to the character dynamics yeah. um but beyond that, uh, it also touches on kingship a lot, right. which was also obviously very important to uh, King James. In fact, King James wrote another short book for his son, who I his son named Henry, so not Charles, not... who became king,
0: or James
1: II. Was it James II who became after? Wait, him? I thought it was Charles, because then Charles got his head cut off. Look at the look at the chart.
0: I'm looking at the chart.
1: We have a chart of uh, all the kings and queens of England. Uh, You're
0: right.
1: On our wall, and it was Charles.
0: Yeah, Charles had James II. There you go. And Anne and William. And wow, all of Charles the, the I's kids ended up sitting on the throne. Yeah,
1: because they all died. They had, a, well, no, they had some William, rough times. William
0: and Mary of Orange were all right. Yeah, it wasn't they, they, the greatest they, period, but yeah, you know. But they
1: managed. Okay. Um, anyways, he also wrote uh, his son James a book about the rules of kingship and the duties and so forth, uh, which is very much in line with Shakespeare's works to that point, all about, uh, you know, what does it mean to be a good king? Uh, who deserves to be king how how do you judge whether a king is doing the right thing or not uh and obviously it's
0: so bad that Henry II didn't do the same for King John <laughs> if you're listening to this just after our episode on King John you'll find that that was a central concern uh, for all of Shakespeare's plays yeah, his history plays coming up and if you look at Macbeth as being kind of a quasi history play because yeah. it is based on historical
1: yeah uh, that's sources. another thing I was going to say that this mm-hmm. is I Macbeth mean, is different same with Julius Caesar is yeah. that well I think Julius Caesar falls more into a history play than, um, than obviously Macbeth. But right. even like Anansi and Cleopatra, uh, I've brought this up with Lindsay. She kind of rolled her eyes at me, but I'm going to bring it up anyways here. Uh, I find one of the defining points of uh, Shakespeare's histories is that the title character is not the main character. Hmm. He's really not that important um, in most cases. Uh, Or she and Cleopatra, I guess. Um, And that's how you kind of differentiate between the tragedy and the history plays in these ones. Uh, Julius Caesar, I would argue, is more history because uh, what's his name? The other guy is the actual main character of the play. Cassius. Cassius. Uh, Whereas Anthony and Cleopatra, it's them. Macbeth, it's Macbeth. Uh, But you look at the Henriads, except for the Henry V... The kings in Henry plays are not the most vibrant, dynamic central characters. King John had the bastard. Uh, Richard the Second is kind of on the. Bubble. Richard the
0: Third, but then you look Richard at the Richard the is, yeah. is 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 not classified. I would, I think most people would classify it as a tragedy because of how it plays out. Exactly, but it is a history play. Yeah.
1: So, it's, so, it, so those, okay. the, the, that's one of the defining features for me. And I think it's, it's interesting that Macbeth so heavily skews towards, no, no, we're going to turn this guy into a character. We're going to focus on him and his, uh, his experiences as king of Scotland. Mm-hmm.
0: Why, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrown upon them. Um, Your last play that you want to talk about is uh, King Lear, which you mentioned at another source was spelt with an I. Where does the I go in Lear?
1: Uh, L-E-I-R.
0: L-E-I-R. IR Lear. that's not how you spell anything. Well,
1: it is in England because uh King Lear is actually uh they think the founding father of Lech- Leicester. 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 Oh. leicester so as Le- you would actually oh say it God, if you it's read
0: it aloud. But not, that but... makes sense. So King Lear L E I for Leicester yes. L E I Chester. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I see what you did there. Yeah, so. England. <laughs> That's smart.
1: <laughs> I love that. Uh, but so there was this anonymous, uh, they don't know who wrote this earlier Lear play, yeah. um, uh, but there are a number of other sources as well. Uh, again, Hollinshead actually did this. He told, he took, uh, in this case, his source material was not uh, the uh, Scottish source, but uh, the Historia Regum Britanniae, uh, which was... Uh, Latin. Yeah, no, it was. Yeah, but it was written. It in was French. written in the Anglo-Saxon. Geoffrey de Monmouth. Yeah, no, yes. it was in French.
0: Right, but it was the during kings the of, Anglo-Saxon period. No,
1: wasn't it? Is was, was in the 12th century, but it covers oh, all the kings yes, you're right. and queens. I'm misreading of, the yeah, notes. Yeah, um, so it was set in yes, like yes, the. Yes. Uh, and they, they, that that text itself uh, said in set Lear in about the seventh to eighth century BC, mm-hmm. um, so it's like an ancient ancient king. Yeah. Um, so all these things about dukes and it's a very yeah. medieval kind of interpretation of it's it's the same text that gave us King Arthur. So right. it's it's taking medieval preoccupations and projecting them onto ancient yes. world. Yeah. So you get that in in Shakespeare too. Obviously, it's a very kind of traditional. Uh, oh yeah, well the king of France. Well, France didn't exist. The Frankish yeah. people didn't even really exist at the time of Lear. Yeah. Um, so it, it is very much an, an ab, uh an interpretation of history to to create this uh character um that that then Shakespeare plays with. Um there's other sources too, including the Fairy Queen, um, which had a character named Cordelia who dies by strangulation, right. just yes, like yes. in uh Shakespeare's. Um and in the earlier Lear. The ending is very different. So, in that one, Lear comes back to the throne. I think oh, Cordelia okay. survives as well, um, and they kind of rule together at the end. It's it's almost like a, a tragical comedy in the f- sense that it's really dramatic, but then the, it has the a good guys win. Yeah, it's exactly. a winter's tale. Yeah, yeah, yeah more okay. than anything.
0: Okay.
1: Um, and uh, the, the, it's interesting that Shakespeare's play in the 17th century was often changed to match that kind of ending. Uh, so the the late so, uh, su- 1600s, they didn't and die. Really? Yeah, at the end when he's he comes back and he just collapses at the end. Yeah. They're like, no, he just survives and he reigns. So, so he, this they is after the, the
0: after they reopen the theaters after the Yes, yes the after Civil the Puritans War, and everything. Yes, they, exactly. They're like, We need a happy ending, yes, we need a king. Especially to for a survive. king. Yeah, exactly. So we're gonna rewrite the ending to an an earlier version of the play or a different version of the play and we're gonna mash up Okay, that's yeah. interesting.
1: Yeah,
0: I'm reading in your notes here that there that this play, this earlier version or this other version of Lear with an I, may have also been authored by Shakespeare or he had a hand in writing. Yeah, this
1: is it's so it was it was put on in 1596, I believe. Okay, um, and. It was published in 1605. Okay. um, But there's no author listed on the publisher.
0: Yeah. Um, Not uncommon for the time. No,
1: exactly. And so people have, you know, there's there's all sorts of of guesses about who authored it. Um, Who performed it? uh, The the Queen's Men. Okay. uh, And another playwright group. So there, these were two that uh, Shakespeare possibly could have even performed. Uh, this earlier version okay so um, but it would have been
0: somebody from that company probably who wrote it then if they were putting it on
1: potentially i mean if if someone was freelancing like if shakespeare wasn't quite if it was between plagues or something like that and he's he's decided well i'm gonna write Lear again that's the
0: or before before
1: yeah and then again later next plague um but there were also other sources so uh the mirror for magistrates by john higgins the malcontent by john marston london prodigal uh what michelle
0: it? de montaigne's essays i did read a lot about that yeah uh, which were translated into english in this the 1600s. C- yeah, C- yeah, yeah so
1: around the time shakespeare would have been writing this and all these ones contribute like either uh individual scenes or descriptions of things or uh kind of provide archetypes for characters so, so these like are,
0: like midsummer night's dream picking and choosing from various places well, to flesh out this world that he's potentially creating.
1: all okay. these ones are are again they're 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 kind of tangential sources and okay. tangential influences so are we to say that definitely the uh the the historical description of inland and of britain which is yes. uh, a, a historical thing by william harrison from 1577 did shakespeare definitely read that and say like yeah no, yeah, no i'm definitely gonna use that in my leer like Potentially not. Right. But here's
0: the thing that we're that we're maybe glossing over a bit is how much are these things part of common vernacular? And yes. Common, yes, exactly. We've mentioned it a little bit before, but it's worth bringing up again that, you know, all of these various sources of great kings from the past, people are talking and, and, you know, they read bedtime stories to their kids. Well, maybe they're telling them the story of King Lear. And maybe this is just part of the fabric of British society that people know these aspects that are written down in various versions. And so Shakespeare picks it up here and there, right? And and it ends up being part of his uh, his great tragedy when mm-hmm. he writes it down, right? I think that's entirely within the realm of possibility. So what, again, it's fitting. We're coming to the end of our list of great plays with their sources. All of these sources are... Um, it's not like we're saying he sat down and, and had this great library of books, which is fascinating because people have been searching for Shakespeare's library yes. for years. So long. And and I don't know what they're expecting to find. Are they looking for, you know, one copy of all of the books that he referenced? Because that's probably not likely. Yeah. I, would, I would venture a guess that Shakespeare had more books, would have had more books of fart jokes than he would have had... <laughs> books about like
1: book of fart jokes
0: well i don't know we have one so i mean it's not like this isn't unheard (laughs) of fair fair point
1: fair point but um um, but that
0: that leads to the one of the interesting things aiden that you found in your research about um we we've mentioned Raphael hollenshead's um Uh, History of Chronicles of the Kings of England. Kingdoms of England, Scotland,
1: and Wales, or something like that, yeah.
0: But there's another version of the History of England that was also used. Well, by a lot of these writers yes
1: and specifically shakespeare in the wars of the roses so it's called the union of the two noble and illustrious families of lancaster and york by, by edward hall so yeah. this is a a very dedicated one focused just on the the wars, wars of the, the roses period so from richard the on through to uh henry the seventh um and it was a it, it's again it's a very clear source in a lot of uh these uh in a lot of those history plays mm-hmm. again he's stealing even right write descriptions and stuff yeah. like that um but what's really interesting is there was uh, a rare book seller uh found a copy with a bunch of Notes in the margins that uh, could be Shakespeare's copy, because uh, it's the notes seem to match up with what eventually became Shakespeare's plays, uh, which is just cool to think about. Um, it's now in the British Library, I think, or I something. I think you like said that. It I British think you said Library, yeah. yeah. So um, that's we'll, really. We'll cool. find a
0: link. We'll throw it up in the, yeah. in the episode description so
1: you can take a look at that yourself.
0: Yeah. I I haven't even looked at it. Do they have photos of the book? I, the... I didn't
1: I didn't look it up either actually. Uh, I'm sure they must at this point. But I I they, the the guy who found the book also wrote a. Book book about his discovery of the book so i'd actually almost be more interested to read that about how he found them if he you know how he's connected them and all that well
0: there's another one just you know i don't have the link handy but i'll find it and put it on the episode description as well but there were a couple of guys in new york and i read this in either the times or the new yorker or something where these two guys found this rare book that was i think sold by a book dealer in ottawa or montreal Mm -hmm. and it it's a dictionary and it's from the 1500s. And there are notes in the margins and words that have been scribbled in there that were coined by Shakespeare that are first found in Shakespeare. So people think this might have been Shakespeare's dictionary, which is a very romantic notion because Shakespeare, <laughs> like I mentioned in my intro, invented you know, anywhere from uh, like 400 words are, uh, you know, one of the counts of what I read. Yeah. You know, 470 some words is are what he invented. So to find his dictionary and to see places where he's pulled a French prefix and an English suffix yeah. and shoved them together and wrote in the margin, this would be a great word to <laughs> give to Henry the Fifth or whatever. Yeah. That would be a really cool thing to find. Definitely. Um, but it really does make you think about the sources that Shakespeare used because how many of them were literary sources? Like actual sit down, read a book, take it and adapt it. And how many of them were just hearsay and common stories that he wrote down and and made into what they are today
1: yeah and just to return to that quickly the last source for king lear is the archetype of a daughter a father having his daughters praise him and then uh treating poorly yeah disowning the third one who doesn't uh treat him properly so that is that is another archetype that's just out there in the oral tradition that you know it, it existed in the source material for shakespeare but the fact that it uh, it existed throughout history. Is, yeah. is very indicative too.
0: Yeah. So it, it's just it. I guess a word of caution, maybe about looking mm-hmm. at the sources of Shakespeare. Like take them with maybe a little bit of a grain of salt, or or um, or don't look at them as like the be all end all. Right. You have to look at the whole picture and and what writers tend to do and write, what what uh, playwrights tend to do and what actors tend to do and um, and how do we interact with the literary traditions in which we grow as people. If I longer stay, we shall begin our ancient bickerings. So for our ancient bickerings today, I think the the question that we've kind of danced around a little bit here and there is, um, was Shakespeare stealing plays, (laughs) stealing material, stealing stories, Mm -hmm. or is this an expression of creativity that, um, that, that is, is totally, acceptable um, so that's what that's what we're going <laughs> to go with with our ancient bickerings today yes um, and I'm going to pass it to you for the first one because this was your idea and I yeah. think I know what you're going to say I
1: think you do um,
0: you're going to lose so I think this uh, this will be this will be an interesting one
1: well, I would just like to say that uh, Shakespeare was a thief. Uh, I've created a little chart where I went through and uh, just the first all the plays we've looked at so far. He's
0: called it the chart of thievery. It is by a the chart way. of thievery,
1: and it is uh, every play that we've looked at, whether or not there was a direct plot that he uh used and mm-hmm. didn't change really much at all and almost all of them are yes in fact the the very few that aren't um tennessee by the way Lindsay, if you're looking at the chart is also stolen from a, a poem um love's labor's lost midsummer night's dream those are the only two that don't have anything uh taming of the shrew potentially yep. uh is is a little more uh likely to have been a somewhat original play um but that's it out of how many we've done 12 13 14 now um very very clear evidence that uh shakespeare didn't really write a write a lot of original plots and then when you scroll over to the other column that i've put in did he steal individual scenes oh yes in almost all of them (laughs) the answer is yes uh the only one again is love's labor's Lost*, which we've talked about that was a very unique kind of play and we Mm -hmm. we remarked on it as we were reading it watching it and talking about it um but everywhere else uh yeah he's stolen direct quotations all sorts of things And I'm not saying, Lindsay, I know you're going to go against this here, but I'm not saying that this is in any way unexpected or means that Shakespeare is unoriginal or a bad writer or anything like that, because this was the expectation of the time, which Mm -hmm. is that you don't write... Uh, an original screenplay you're not writing inception you're writing marvel movie 12 (laughs) because it brings it brings asses to seats i mean the fact that we've had a fairly creative hollywood uh for from you know the 30s on to the 2000s and the fact that that kind of has died in the last 10 years i think is actually indicative of how people have always approached the business of entertainment which is did it work before Let's fucking do it again, you know? Like it's that simple. Um, but it, is it is it indicative that Shakespeare uh, couldn't write original things? I think maybe a little bit. I think some of the original plays on here are not maybe his strongest. I think *Love Labors Lost* is interesting, um, but when you look at the huge plays that we just talked about—the Hamlets, the Macbeths, the uh, Julius Caesars—these all have source material that he took directly. And just adapted slightly to make it his own. I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's morally uh, negative in any way, shape, or form. I just think it's it's a it's a symptom of what Shakespeare's uh, experience and everything else around him expects him to be,
0: okay? In calling him a thief, though, I think you do <laughs> put a little bit of moral onus on him. Uh, yeah. and then and that is a judgment call that he's that he's a thief. And and I I will say that the idea of copyright did not exist. So the the yeah. I I guess in a sense I'm agreeing with you there that this was what people did. This was not something that was unheard of. Nobody copyrighted their work. Um that's not that's a very modern thing. Yeah. Very, very very modern, very modern thing. Yeah. Um and that's Purely because of capitalism. Mm -hmm. The 1590s, 1580s, 90s, up until the early part of the 17th century, this was a a very early mercantile system. This was not our capitalist system that we have now. So people weren't expected to um, own their ideas. And so it's it's kind of unfair to point the finger at Shakespeare and say that he stole ideas because it, it really wasn't. As you said yourself, Aiden, this was the, this was the environment in which he grew. This was, this was what he did. Mm -hmm. It's what everybody did. The, the rise of the original story doesn't happen until the 1700s. And, and then you get, you know, writers like Jane Austen writing original novels Mm -hmm. and, and, and really pioneering that um, form of entertainment. That's the only time that you start getting really original stories. Everybody writing any kind of secular story from the time that people started writing down stories up until that point, they're taking from the Bible and mythology and and they're revamping it. It's fan fiction. It really is. That's Mm -hmm. what it is. This is a long, long tradition that fandom writers today exist within. So to point at him and say he doesn't have an original bone in his body, well, he wasn't expected to have. You said it yourself. He really wasn't expected to have an original bone in his body. And when he does step out and, and create something very unique, for example, taking the myth of Amleth and turning it into a psychological, philosophical revenge tragedy. Uh, yes. It shows that there's he had that ability to rise above the source material and turn it into something that would have lasting appeal. We would not remember the story of Amleth if it wasn't for Shakespeare's writing of Hamlet. So sure. I think that in itself says that he could have done it. If the conditions in which he was writing allowed for it. But nobody wanted to see Jane Eyre on stage at this time. (laughs) They wanted to see repackaging, the repackaging of old myths and old stories that they were familiar with, with their favorite actors on stage. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's exactly the same thing as going into a Marvel movie. It is. and that's exactly what's wrong with Hollywood today, in that they aren't doing anything different anymore. Yes. They are just doing the same thing. Yes. So I will, I will counter your argument there
1: with my own argument, with your
0: own <laughs> argument. <laughs> I love
1: it when nothing, you do that. Nothing,
0: nothing that these sequel studios are doing is original, yeah. and uh, and that's that's where I feel that the. My sadness with Hollywood begins and ends.
1: Yeah. And it's, I think it's fair. I mean, I think we don't actually disagree that much. I just, I, uh, I, I, it, it, I was alerted to it far more researching this. I i thought Shakespeare had a few more original plots in his repertoire. um, And I didn't realize just how much reading that Julius Caesar passages, uh, comparing, you know yeah. what caesar is saying and what's in the text and they are nearly identical uh threw me for a bit of a loop cuz i thought there was a bit more of an adaptation to to what he
0: Well done. and and i think when we when we look at shakespeare as an as a an adaptator, adapter adapter
1: that he's also like an
0: adapter he's like an ac adapter for your your uh, laptop yep yeah, sure yep okay
1: mm-hmm.
0: if we look at shakespeare as an adapter um <laughs> it's it's Maybe more akin to transliteration. No, that's not the word. It's like, it's like I'm transcribing. It's a transcription service that puts a little flair on top. You know but is, is
1: the English language's greatest writer just a transcriber? Well, but
0: here's the thing, because if you, why do we not remember any of the original source material? Why is this something that we didn't know? So we had to return to that and do a bunch of research to find those source materials. And when I did look at the source material for Romeo and Juliet, I was bored to tears. Mm-hmm. But I read Romeo and Juliet and I'm engaged. You got it. So there's something... Missing in the original sources that Shakespeare manages to bring in. And I think even someone who's not a fan of Shakespeare can see that there's something unique and special about it. So even though what was happening in Elizabethan England, especially when it comes to um, drama and what was being written in the drama circles, Mm -hmm. even if it is more like transcribing older sources and modernizing them and maybe putting a spin on it that makes it appealing to a modern audience even though that's happening there is still when Shakespeare does it there's still something special that's happening there and mm-hmm. I don't know what that is it's it's that that particular barred barterific thing i just yeah. made up a word but nope. it, it, i don't know how to call it like what to call it and this this is really coming too close to bardolatry i think <laughs> for my liking but
1: but it's true i mean i i do i know exactly what you're talking about there there is a shakespeare sheen on everything yeah. that he writes and it's it turns unique.
0: the phrases and the way that the yeah. the even though Marlowe was the first one to turn a villain into someone you really don't know as a villain you know like his uh, uh is it barnabas in Juve, Malta. I don't remember. I don't remember either.
1: Yeah, or Doctor Faustus, you know, yeah, where it's like like a, a yeah.
0: character who is who is evil but has redeeming qualities. Something that Marlowe does very well, and then Shakespeare just shines it to like that. Without that, you don't have Don Draper, you know, you don't have Tony Soprano or. Uh, joe mcmillan on halt and catch fire like you don't have anti-heroes yeah. right that's yeah. something that shakespeare really brings and so that's an original kind invention,
1: of invention i suppose yeah if
0: not an invention he he brings it to its you know stokes that fire until it's something yeah. worthy of commenting on i think that's fair so eh, i don't mind so much that he borrowed his source material Neither do but I. then i'm a fanfic writer so it doesn't it really yeah. doesn't bother no, me I, at all
1: same same
0: okay so i win
1: yes
0: You heard it here, folks. Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say goodnight till it be morrow.
1: Aiden what's next on our list? The, well, speaking of The Merchant of Venice, it's The Merchant of Venice! That's right, The Merchant of Venice! My favorite
0: play. Um, yeah, that'll be a fun one. It's, uh, it's one of the more entertaining ones, and I think it has, there's a lot to say about feminism and, um... Oh, yeah. Uh... Brotherly love. Let's let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, and and also very very potent commentary on racism that I think could be read into it. Many people may not want to read into it, but I think it. Uh, My opinion is that it doesn't leave a lot of room for negotiation. Yeah,
1: same. I think we agree on this play quite a bit. It's one of our favorite. Oh, it's it's going to be a fun conversation.
0: I love it. After that, we've got our topic play or a topic. Episode and episode. it's
1: it's Shakespeare and the law because touching on obviously the Merchant of Venice very concerned with the law and uh, it's it's. Exertion of control over people and so forth. So, we're going to talk about
0: considering neither one of us are legal scholars not either.
1: Close, but Lindsay, uh, just to lay the groundwork here, Lindsay did take a course, yes, in university. I did, Shakespeare and the Law.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, where you and a law student, you was an English student, as an yeah, English yeah,
0: there were major. six. I'll briefly laid out there yeah. were six English students, six law students, and we were paired up and we had to argue the Merchant of Venice, mm-hmm. um, whether or not Shylock. Uh, that the the verdict in that case would have been um, upheld. It was like an appeals court type of thing, um, and uh, it was a fascinating journey to like be an English major who picks apart for language and for metaphor and for you know all of this stuff, and to be partnered up with a. Uh, law student i believe his name was joel and we he would come at it from a legal perspective like this wouldn't stand up in court and and we were arguing it by by modern standards it was very it was a really interesting um case study yeah. and uh one of my fondest memories actually arguing it in the moot court at the university of alberta law building was unreal was very fun. cool yeah
1: so we'll we'll talk about that we'll talk yeah. about uh the other instances of shakespeare and the law um, you know, there's as you like it. There's all sorts yeah. of of instances where the law becomes involved in, in yeah. what's going on in Shakespeare's worlds, and yeah, we'll we'll dive into all of those.
0: So until next time, as Joanne McLeod, McLeod, and Hal Johnson used to say, keep fit and have fun. That that's a reference for all of you Canadian listeners out there from, you, from the
1: eighties and 90s, yes, millennials yes.
0: and. <laughs> gen xers who remember body break <laughs> maybe we should put it a body break music yes no, no the not outro. the music we should do that oh my god we're gonna get sued it's fun you can find all our episodes on itunes spotify podbean youtube or wherever you get your podcast fix
1: if you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at Bixpod,
0: on Facebook at facebook.com slash Bixpod, or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.